Morning. 11 o'clock. You survived the rapture. <laughs> or did you? <laughs> uh, welcome to Christian Church Buckhead. My name is Derek. I'm the pastor. I was just told in the lobby as I went out to get some water by one of our sixth graders that it wouldn't be church without bad coffee. So, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> so I hope you're enjoying that cup of whatever it is you're drinking. Um, <laughs> so, Philippians chapter 4, if you have a Bible, we'll get there in a minute. Um, we're sort of closing in on the end of a series, and I'll talk about that in just a second. Um, it really, really interesting thing last service Right during the final song, which we'll sing together as well, uh, one of our friends came up to me. Uh, he, interesting story, he lives on the park bench um, a couple blocks south of here. And we've gotten to know him and uh, working to help, you know, help him. And he came up to me and he said, during the last song, he said, I needed to hear that, the sermon, which is always humbling. And so, I don't really care what you think of it, because... I've already been affirmed that uh, God has moved uh, through His Word today, although I hope that you can say the same thing when we're finished. I have lots of notes today. It's very unlike me, so I have a stand with paper and all sorts of stuff. So I hope you're ready. Are you ready? Um, we're in a series. We're at the tail end of a series, really, that is based on these uh, four words behind me that you see on the paintings. Uh, they are the words focus, uh, framework, mindset, and then today we're going to step into what is going to be two parts uh, into this word mission and these words are a, a rewording that we put together based on what Jesus called the greatest commandment, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, we chose these words because they do describe what each of those components are. Uh, the heart in the ancient world was seen as the seat of someone's passions. It's the thing that they focused on the most. Uh, Jesus said something that sounds profound to us, but everyone then would have got it, and it was that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Everybody knew that those two things are always in the same place. You, your heart always chases the thing that you treasure, and your treasure always funds your heart. These things aren't profound to them as they might be to us. We have to sort of reconcile our life with that. And so to love God with all your heart was simply to keep God as the primary focus of your life above everything. Some people take that to mean that you don't focus on anything but God, but that's not what it means. It means that above the sea of everything that you have in your life, that God is always visible, that He is always the primary focal point. So we talked about that. We've talked about the soul, which we uh, gave the word framework to. This is a very complicated piece of, of Scripture, like what does it mean to love God with your soul, and what is the soul? And the soul first appears in Genesis um, chapter 2 when... God breathes into the nostrils of man and gives him life, and the word there uh, becomes a living being, it says, and the word there is the word nefesh, which means soul, which means living being. And so the soul at the base level is the thing that makes you alive. It's your life. It's that you're living and breathing. It's what separates you from what isn't living. And so part of loving God with all your soul is simply getting that life comes from God, not from you. And then the soul is also seen as the intimate connection between us and God. It's the thing that binds us together. It's the relationship piece for sure, part of that. And 
Uh, loving God with all of our soul means that God continues to feed that and build that framework into something stronger. And then we talked about the mind last week. Uh, it was one of those sermons that I think was weird. And I left the building last week and said, eh, it's always next week. So, but anyway, uh, Paul said in his letter to the Romans in the New Testament, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's not, I met Jesus, boom, my mind has changed. It's this ongoing journey to be transformed in our thinking. So all that to say, when someone becomes a Christian, which has been the premise of this series, when someone decides to follow Christ, there's a newness in all those areas of his or her life. That Jesus becomes the new primary focal point on the horizon. That he becomes the builder and feeder of my soul. And that he completely screws up my thinking. He messes with my head. Because I start to see the world the way he sees the world, and that is usually radically different than the way I'm used to. Does that make sense? Well, that's good. Today, again, mission, and this is the word strength. Love the Lord God with all your strength. Um, We chose mission as a word to help define strength for this reason, because the strength in in the ancient world was seen, or the Old Testament uses the word might. Uh, It's the outward It's what you see a person doing with their life. So in regards to faith, to love the Lord God with all your strength, uh, the strength of a person's life is what you see them doing in response to or because of what they believe. It's the faith and works piece. So the strength of a person's life is the outcropping. It's the proof of a relationship with God. And the most obvious and clear example of this would be that you're serving other people, that you don't live for yourself, but that you're serving others. Serving is the outward declaration of faith. To love your neighbor as yourself is rooted in serving them. Not how you feel about them, but serving them. And uh, now you don't have to be a Christian to serve people. I I know that you probably know that. We have great friends that aren't Christians that are great servants. Um, They give of themselves back into the community, into people's lives. You don't have to be a Jesus follower to serve people. That's not what this is about. And there are also countless stories of people um, coming to Jesus because they immersed themselves first, unknowingly perhaps, in the ways of Jesus through service, and then they met Jesus in the process. It's amazing. That happens sometimes. So you don't have to be a Christian to serve others. The New Testament is clear that that's not the case, but what it's also clear about is that you can't be a Christian and not serve. It's just it doesn't work. Uh, the New Testament says faith without works is what? Dead. Or as Martin Luther said, faith without works was never faith at all. And again, loving your neighbor as yourself is rooted in serving people. And so works of service become the new mission in the life of a person. So whatever it is that you do, whether you're a teacher, architect, designer, musician, artist, stay-at-home mom, business owner, doesn't matter what you do, the mission of a Christian's life is to somehow allow God to get into whatever it is that I do and, and have his mission unfold. And so that's where we were headed. Now, I didn't want to talk about serving today because I know how that is. Like you should serve and you go, <gasps> so I gave that to Jamie. He's going to do that next week. <laughs> you ready? 
and I hope he leads with the Alan Hirsch quote that um, the church doesn't have a mission, but God's mission has a church. And that is so profound, that God is moving in the world, and the church's job is not to create its own mission, but to join the one that God is on. And so that's really what serving uh, is all about. And so to love God with all your strength, this is all introductory, and then we'll pray and get into this. Um, Part of that is the service piece, the outward piece, but part of it too is the perseverance piece, the holding on, the hanging in there, faithfulness piece. When circumstances of life put your hope and trust in God to the test, it's in those moments that God's calling us to hang in there with all your strength, that you love God with all your strength. An old understanding of this part of the, the, the Bible, to love the Lord God with all your strength, was simply that you love Him to the end, to the death. It's the dying words of many devout Jews, to love the Lord God with all my strength. When Jesus said, it is finished, it's, you know, strength all the way to the end, to the death. I love the image of Jesus refusing alcohol on the cross to take His mind off it, to take the pain away. I don't know how you can take the pain away of something like that, but He refused it to the end, all the way, with all my strength. He said in Revelation 2.10, to be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So part of this, maybe the biggest part of loving God with all of our strength, is answering the question, where does my strength come from? And so I've chosen Philippians 4, 10 through 13. Are you there? Now we've kicked this text around, I would say, often in here. But today I want to move through it very purposefully, and very systematically, uh, if that's possible for somebody like me, and then hopefully encourage you uh, along the way. So whatever circumstance you're in in life, or maybe you can imagine the ones that always weaken you, that's kind of how you want to come at this text today. Um, Let me just give you some background. I mean, if you want to, turn to chapter 1 of Philippians, and we'll just kind of move through this whole thing, because what he says in chapter 4 is all you know, predicated on all this stuff he says beforehand. But this letter, by the way, was written by Paul in prison. So the circumstances under which Paul wrote the letter were not favorable. And the letter points to the issue of life's circumstances and how, particularly how Paul dealt with his own, which were negative. And so the letter uh, becomes a broad teaching for all of us in how we deal with um, our own circumstances. But it starts the way Paul starts much of his letters right here in the beginning in verse 3. Like, I thank God every time I remember you. So he's writing the Philippians, this church he started in the city of Philippi. And he's just like, I love you guys. I pray for you guys. He thanks them in verse 5 for their partnership with him. So he doesn't see them as just, hey, I planted a church and we, you know, check that off the list and go forward. But he sees them as partners in what he's doing, which is amazing. And he encourages them in verse 6 that uh, whatever God started in them, he's going to finish. So there's this faithfulness of God piece that he talks about. And then in verse 12, he changes directions, and he talks about his own circumstances, which are in his own words that he's in chains. And he literally is. He's chained to a wall in a jail. So he talks about, and this is so difficult for us sometimes, but he talks about how his own chains are benefiting the story of Jesus. It's getting out, possibly not because not just because he's in jail, but possibly because how he's handling his situation. So the world looks into the jail cell, they listen to Paul, they talk to him, and they're learning the story of Jesus just by how he's behaving. 
And so then he gets over in verse 27 of chapter 1, and he says, Whatever happens you know, to you, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this is Paul's way of saying, because he's still a human, just do what I do. Just conduct yourselves the way I have, which is in a manner worthy of the gospel, which means good news of Jesus. Right? So he's encouraging them, but he's saying, and the reason he's addressing this, by the way, is they've sent him gifts. He's in prison, and his buddy Epaphroditus, what a name, brings him gifts, whether it's money or clothing or things to read or whatever. And so he feels the need to write the Philippians thanking them for their gifts, but he also realizes that they're sending things to him because they feel bad for him. And so he begins right here in the letter going, don't, don't weep for me. I'm fine. And then he moves into chapter 2 about, he starts talking to them about how you should live your life. And the example he gives is, you know, perhaps the most famous, maybe the oldest hymn in the church right here, speaking of Jesus from verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then we have this nice poem, this song that was perhaps sung in the earliest churches, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, he made himself nothing, and so on and so on and so on, about how God left heaven, came here, humbled himself, became a servant, died on a cross for you. So here we have another picture of suffering. God suffered on behalf of you. And then he goes down into verse 12 and says, look, same thing, continue to work out your salvation with trembling and fear. Verse 14, do everything without complaining. So here we are zeroing back in on the issue of circumstances. Just do everything without complaining. That's a verse we skip. I mean, that's what Facebook statuses are for, right? So that you may be blameless and pure, he says, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. So there is a component of how you live tells a story. It's very important. Particularly how you live in the midst of negative circumstances. Verse, or chapter 3. Because part of how we see ourselves is based on how we've done in life. And so Paul takes chapter 3 to <laughs> just talk about how great he is, how all the degrees he has, all the, you know, all the languages he can speak, how religiously you know, devout he was, how pure he is. And so when he talks about all of that stuff, and then in verse 7 he says, but all of that I consider loss for the sake of Christ. Right? What is more, he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them, what's the word? Rubbish. In the Greek, that's profanity. You can assume what that means. That I may gain Christ. And then he goes down into verse 10 and says, I want to know Christ. Like, this is the end goal for Paul. I just want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his, not greatness, but suffering. So it's this odd piece of the letter where Paul begins to shape for us, like, look, here's all the things that have been good in my life, and they're not bad. But compared to Jesus, they're all rubbish. They're trash. Now, he says this because it's often the case with many of us, maybe the whole human race. We look at the things that we've accomplished, our achievements, our successes, and those shape us. And Paul says we have to get ourselves out of that pattern. Then, chapter 4, the closing of the letter the first nine verses are about if you're struggling, if you need 
encouragement if you are anxious, which is verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, that just means we shouldn't even debate what that means. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So if you're anxious about your circumstances, because again, he's writing this from prison. And then, in verse 13, which is where we're ending today, but we'll hit it here. He says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength, which is now written on the inside of all sorts of football helmets and running shoes and cleats. Some versions say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So the whole letter moves to verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. But the strength that he's getting are in circumstances that weaken him. And verse 11, just back up, the second part of verse 11, he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. It's a pretty extraordinary riff, is it not? In whatever the circumstances, he's learned to be content. Now just look at that verse. I'm not a Greek scholar and I basically almost failed Hebrew. But what I do know is that this word content that Paul uses, this is the only time that it appears in the Bible. I mean, there are different words for different ways of saying the same things, but this one is solo. This one is on its own. And so Paul, we're just highlighting what Paul is saying today, that he has learned to be this, this content state, in this content state. So I want to talk about contentment. And the way I want to do it is, again, I have a lot of notes. This is this is fun, actually, because if I get nervous, I can just read. But I want to talk about some barriers to contentment for just a minute. One, and again, this is all sort of moving from the letter of Paul and what we know of Scripture but, and just of life, but oftentimes contentment for us, we define contentment by our circumstances. We typically are content in favorable circumstances, right? When life's on track with what we had in mind, then we're good with it. But when life doesn't go the way we planned, then our peace and our contentment and our state you know, of emotional health takes a hit. So we're forced to reckon with our circumstances. But Paul speaks of his contentment in here as something that is present irrespective of his circumstances. Like he's immune. Now the Stoic philosophers of Paul's day believed that your circumstances were the result of divine will, punishment. Maybe you have that same theology. And that there's nothing you can do about it except somehow figure out how to be your own redeemer and get out of the situation through your own personal strength and wisdom. And the philosophers of his day use this word content to describe the independence in your life that comes from wisdom that you can sort of figure out. But Paul spoke of a different kind of contentment. Somehow being content in whatever circumstance. He spoke of this idea of independence, of dependence on Jesus. And often what is the case is we look at our circumstances and that defines if we're going to be content or not. Another barrier is that we define contentment by what is present in our life or 
by what we might call our own. I mean, let's be honest. All of us have a certain level, uh, find a certain level of contentment in the things that we have. Relationships, kids, possessions, jobs, status, and so on, and that's okay. But this is the hard part of being a Christian, which is somehow keeping good things from becoming divine things. Idols, the Bible calls it. It's a very strong word, but that's all it means. You take a good thing, like a relationship or a job or a thing, and you make it divine. It feeds you. It's the thing you go for. And when you make something divine, you do what every religious person does throughout history. You sacrifice for it. You bring things to the altar of whatever it is that you think is divine, and you sacrifice your time, your money, your relationships, your integrity to get it. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. And sometimes contentment is based on or defined by what we have. For me, it goes like this. The work of the church is what I do. That's my gig. It's, I love it. I love what I do, which is good because I'm not really skilled to do anything else. The longer I do this, <laughs> the further away from reality. <laughs> That's why you're here in my life, so you can keep me grounded. So all of my energy goes into this church. No other church. I love them, but they have their own pastors. And so I pray for you. I think about you. I have fights and creative meetings over what I think is best for you. But I'm also very aware that if I find myself uh, doing everything just for your approval and not out of obedience to God's call on my life, then my job becomes more important than the God of my job. It's funny to think about that ministry can become an idol, but it can. And if this church is somehow my everything, like it defines everything about who I am, and for some reason we close our doors, which the majority of churches tend to do, if it's my everything and we lose it, then I've lost everything. I have to go and find something else. Does that make sense? So you just put it in your life, your career, your job, your family, a kid, a certain person, a relationship, whatever, if that's your everything and then it goes away, then you don't have anything. So the dance of the Christian is to figure out how to partner with the world and yet not rely on the world for contentment. The scriptures say we're in the world but not of the world. It's a balance. Sometimes we define contentment by not what we have but what's missing, Right? Uh, what we don't have. And this is all about the 10th commandment, which is do not covet, which is a word we only use here in church. And to covet is simply to want somebody else's life. That's all that means. To covet is to look at your own life and say, it's not enough. And so you look at your neighbor's life and you want, you want it more than you want your own. That's what that means. His car, his house, his wife, his kids, his career, his influence, his power. And until you get it, you're not content. So contentment for many people ends up being this pursuit that never ends, right? For the next thing, the next relationship, the next piece of technology, the next girl, the next guy, the next job, and so on, and so on, and so on, and it never ends. No one who defines contentment by what they're missing will ever find their lives settled, ever. And so Paul just throws in a wrench here and says, I've learned to be content and whatever the circumstances. And the first thing that he says about contentment is that it's something that you learn to be. 
We're not born content. We're not naturally fulfilled. At the end of the month, June, uh, we're going to go pick up our baby that we're adopting. And so, yeah, thanks. I didn't do anything. I just wrote the check and filled out the paperwork and had all the blood work and we're good to go. Uh, You know, and so this is what we know. We've had a kid before. We still have a kid or he has us. I don't know. But we had one before. That's what we told the adoption agency. We've had one before. Um, (laughs) But here's the thing. Like, we're prepping for that. We bought a crib yesterday, so it's pretty fun. Um, They look the same as they did last time we had one. And, you know, we're going to put it together and put it in the corner and, you know, get things ready because... We're going to bring home this baby, and she's not going to, she, she's not, she's going to have to have support just to live, to eat, to breathe, to survive. We're not born complete. We're not born content. We're not born without needs. We're born into a life that has needs. And when we're young, like a baby, those needs are for survival. But as we grow older, we start to learn that there are differences between wants and needs. Though this is a very hard journey, we begin to learn the difference between what we need and what we want. But we often confuse the two. This goes back to Genesis 3, as so much does. When God told the first people, Adam and Eve, how life would be, because of sin, how life would be a fight, that they would have to work to survive, and that relationships would be a struggle because of their own preoccupations with life's worries and achievement and success. Because to the man, he says, you'll work by the sweat of your brow. That's what you're going to do. You're going you're gonna to eat and succeed because you work hard. And then he says to the woman, and your desire will be for that guy. Which means that you're always going to be chasing him. Because he's chasing his career, he's chasing his work, he's chasing the things that give him a feeling of success and achievement, and you're just chasing the relationship. And we often read Genesis 3 as a declaration of the way things are supposed to be. That man goes and works in the field and sweats, and you know, like we all do. And that the women have been relegated to live a life of trying just to win the approval and the attention of their husbands. But that's not what God is saying. What God is saying is that when sin reigns and has its way, this is what happens to people. It's profound that the first effect of sin was a broken relationship between two people. That God was clear that if we allow sin to control our lives, that contentment and fulfillment will always be found in the chase of our careers and our relationships. And so from almost the very beginning, we've had to fight this urge to find contentment in anything but God. And as Paul says, it's a learned thing. And when Paul says that he had to learn how to be content, it's a signal that you and I are going to have to learn that too. We don't just meet Jesus in the baptistry and come out content. We, in fact, have to learn this thing. And if you just read up on Paul's life, it's no secret that he had his share of failings. Remember, he's writing this letter from prison. And for us, we must also remember that contentment that comes from God is something you learn 
and it's something we discover most often in failure. Amen? Secondly, what Paul is teaching us about contentment is that it, contentment on its own, actually doesn't know the difference between poverty and wealth. Look at verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, he says. And I know what it is to have plenty. So wealth, poverty. And I've learned the secret, new word inserted, the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Like we think that contentment knows the difference between poverty and wealth, but it doesn't. The poor will always imagine that contentment is waiting for them in achievement of possessions. But the rich struggle with the same thing. This is why when Jesus talks about money, which he does often, he never really defines what's too much or too little. Because in the scriptures, money is always an issue of somebody's heart. So materialism can be strong in the life of someone who makes minimum wage. And generosity and benevolence can be present in the life of a millionaire. And of course, it can go the other way around too. And most often the rich struggle more than the poor in the pursuit of contentment because of the thrill of achievement and success. In Ecclesiastes 4, the writer paints this picture of a man, and the the phrase that it uses is, the writer says, his eyes are never content with his wealth. He always wants more. So it's possible that you can covet what you already have. You can covet within your own life. Uh, From his book, The Sabbath, uh, Joshua Heschel says, this is lengthy, so hang in there. Possessions become the symbol of our repressions, jubilees of frustrations. But the things of space are not fireproof. They only add fuel to the flames. It's the joy of possessions, is the joy of possessions an antidote to the terror of time, which grows to be a dread of the inevitable death Things, when magnified, are forgeries of happiness. They are the threat to our very lives. And we are often more harassed than supported by the Frankensteins of spatial things. But you don't learn that until you, know, until you go through that. And again, Paul is clear. It's just, he's been in situations where he had everything, and he's been in situations where he's had nothing. And to him, it's all the same. And that's the secret. The secret of contentment for him is not found in wealth or poverty or hunger or being filled. Thirdly, look at verse 13. I, he says, can do everything through him who gives me strength. So when Paul says that it's Christ and through him strength for surviving circumstances comes and being content for him, this is about Again, he spent so much time in the letter saying, identity, identity, identity. That's not your identity. My identity was never in these things. It's in Jesus. And so when he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, this is about how Paul now sees himself. That he now sees himself as one of Christ's people. His identity is now wound up in Jesus, not in good situations or bad or in wealth or in want. He doesn't talk about that. Now everything for him is about personal identity in Jesus. And when Paul says that he finds strength in Christ and in Christ alone, a couple of things here. Paul isn't saying that 
God now does everything for him. Because it's easy to read that, like I can do all things to him who gives me strength, sounds like a genie in a bottle. So it's easy to read that and to hear the absurdity that sometimes we pull out of that, which is that God completely takes over every decision and every circumstance. Or that God fixes every problem. And I know that that's what we want, but it doesn't, that's not what it means. Let me share with you um, uh, C.S. Lewis. Hang in there because one sentence is like a page with him. Um, I'll just pull the page out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really old book. Um, it usually has a rubber band. Um, this is what he says. It would no doubt have been possible for God to remove by miracles the results of the first sin committed by a human being, but this would not have been much good unless he was prepared to remove the results of the second sin and of the third and so on forever. And if the miracle ceased, then sooner or later we might have reached our present lamentable situation. If they did not, then a world thus continually underpropped and corrected by divine interference would have been a world in which nothing important ever depended on human choice and in which choice itself would soon cease from the certainty that one of the apparent alternatives before you would lead to no results and was therefore never really an alternative. And then he throws in this nice closing riff, which I just think needs to be said. The chess player's freedom to play chess depends on the rigidity of the squares and the moves. That God is present, but he allows us to experience the results of sin and the results of just life circumstances. And Paul is saying that he's actually more connected to Christ because of his pain. Again, this goes back to chapter 3 where he's like, I just want to know Jesus more. And part of that is sharing in his sufferings. So he begins to identify with Christ even more than before. Finally, this, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, is again about identity in Christ. Your identity in Christ. My identity in Christ. And when we spend our lives, which we do, we chase down and try and capture our identity. And the whole world is seeking to belong to something. Some group, some school, some neighborhood, some career, even some churches define people. That's where they get their identity. And whatever that something is, it becomes us. We define ourselves by what we do instead of letting what we do be a tracer to who we are. And I've said this before from the stage, and I'll say it again, but God cares a lot less about what you do and more about who you are. And the struggle with this is very simple. If my significance is wrapped up in my performance and achievements, then my identity is always shaky because those aren't always going to be there. Two weeks ago, I shared from this stage my own personal struggle as a preacher because you guys intimidate me. Um, at times. Sometimes I don't sweat you, but most times you, you, you intimidate me. In a good way. You challenge me. And so I got nervous early in ministry and just started looking at all these other preachers. It's like trying to get, really trying to find my identity in other people. I mean, that was the story I shared a couple weeks ago. You know, just comparing myself to great preachers and their writings and their sermons and um, all that. And that's what we do. We aren't content 
So we chase down what we think should be our identity. We pursue the shape that we want for our lives, and then we call it our own. Look what I made. And we work hard to define ourselves by all sorts of stuff, and then we turn around and we say, this is who I am. And we work tirelessly to build our identity. And then we find Jesus in the gospel saying crazy things like, if anyone wants to be my disciple, then he must actually deny himself. Like tear down that thing that you're building. Just forget about it. And then he says, and take up his cross and then come follow me. That's a life of self-denial. That's not a life of building my identity. That's actually a life of losing my identity. We live in a world that is trying to sell us our best selves, to convince us of who we are, but the heart of the Christian faith is found in losing my identity, not gaining it, not building it, not shaping it, but losing it and replacing it. As C.S. Lewis also says, that we find our true selves in Jesus. That's where we find it. That's where we find where God always wanted us to be. Not in our work, not in our relationships, but in Him. And the baseline narrative in the Christian story is not one really of victory for the person, it's of defeat. About giving up the fight for self. And in the text, in this letter, Paul teaches a very profound truth that our strength for living should not come from any achievement or any negative circumstance, but from Christ and Christ alone. And in a world that has markers for success that can look at your life and mind and say, clearly they're winning. They know you're doing right. They know you're doing well by what they see. We find an alternative message in the Gospels that we're to give up on that fight, to define ourselves by what we do, and instead become our true selves in Christ. Amen? That's what it means to love God with all your strength. It's to just stay faithful to the death because he's the source. He's the thing that keeps us going. I think about the first four commandments in the list of ten and how this whole series has followed them somewhat because the focus that we talked about in week one is, again, the heart, the thing that we look to and God said in the first commandment, you're to have no other gods before me. I'm the one you see. And then the next commandment is don't make an idol, which, again, all an idol is is something you see that is giving you life. And when we talk about the soul, the framework, the thing that the intimate connection, the life source between us and God, like to love the Lord God with all your soul is to walk away from the need of idols. And then the third commandment is to not misuse the name of the Lord, which implies that you know the name of the Lord, that you know what it means, that you have a knowledge of who God is, that your mind is focused on your God. And then this thing about strength, you know, the fourth commandment is the Sabbath. (laughs) What is the Sabbath about? It's about you stopping all the things that you do because you think that gives you everything that you need because you're self-sufficient and I'm self-sufficient. And the Sabbath is about taking a break from the things that you can do to succeed and achieve and to just remember that this is God's world and that he provides and that he loves and that he's the one that gives strength. And that the last six commandments are about loving your neighbor. So the fourth one is split in half. It's like strength that we find in God, but then we move into this strength where we serve. We take 
our faith and we put works to it. Does that make sense? I mean, it's not my notes. I'm just asking. I just made that up. Hebrews 10. Let's close with this. To the right, a few books. This sets Jamie up for next week. I'm, I'm going to start with verse 25, and then we're going to back up to verse 24. Uh, verse 25, the writer says, Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Now, what's frustrating about this is that the writer doesn't tell us why people were giving up meeting together. But if people have always been people, and with almost 20 years of pastoring in my life, I can probably guess what was going on. They were just giving up because they felt like maybe God had given up, or maybe there was sin that they were ashamed of, so they just don't show up to church anymore. That's pretty common. Or they just were losing faith, they were losing strength. And often what happens in church people's lives, when they feel like things are slipping away in their faith, is they just stop showing up, right? I mean, sometimes it's the music and sometimes it's the preaching. Please don't let me know if that's the reason you're leaving. But oftentimes, most often, it's not those things. It's, I got this thing going on under the surface and I don't want to let anybody know, and so I'm just going to stay away. And so the writer says, don't, don't do that. Don't walk away. Don't stop circling up as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So strength comes from staying connected both to people but ultimately to God. And then in verse 24, backing up, and let us consider how we may spur. That word means irritate, as you can imagine one another on toward love and good deeds. Which is a harsh way of saying, stop whining, it's not about you anyway. It's about what God's mission is doing through you in the world. Because the church doesn't have a mission, God's mission has a church. And He wants to use you and me to make some incredible differences in the lives of people. And so we're here as a church family, right here in the city of Atlanta, to spur one another on towards those things. And along the way, we come together each week and we sing and we commune and we pray to encourage because we need that. And I hope that you felt that today. And, um, and as we take communion to close, um, Keep that in your minds, in your hearts, as you walk to a table. There are two in the front, two in the back. And as you take the bread and the juice, it's a reminder of God's grace, His commitment to you and me, and that is the strength that Paul is drawing on, that no matter the circumstances, God's love and grace shines through. And so as you take that together uh, as a family or as just on your own, that, um, that that's at the forefront of your mind. And then we'll sing a song on the way out together. Let's pray. God, thank you for today and thank you for uh, examples like Paul and many others in the scriptures that in the face of circumstances that weaken, that can weaken them, they find strength in you and it's a lesson for us that um, what, whatever our circumstance, you want to provide strength and courage and faith 
And sometimes we lose strength and sometimes we, um, we are weakened. But you're, you're always there and you're always present and your grace and your mercy and commitment, they transcend all circumstances. And so as we approach the tables uh, around the room, God, speak to us about that. Just encourage us that we can always come to you, that you can always be our source of strength in times of need. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray, and everyone said, amen.